Welcome to the Baseline Community Church Podcast. Well, good morning, my friends. Good morning. Welcome to everyone outside, online. So glad you're with us. A special welcome to my parents who are here today. They came, they're visiting from uh, Ventura, and I will just say that they happen to come on the week that I'm preaching about sex and sexuality. So you can just kind of laugh at that. It's like every child's dream, right? <laughs> every child's dream to talk and speak on sex to their parents. This is great. Just God, he has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Um, before we get there, I want to just tell you in the spirit of Halloween, a quick story about one of my favorite costumes. Now, as a kid, I loved to dress up. I just loved, we had a dress-up box in our home, and I loved costumes, and I was always putting on masks and all sorts of things. And one of my very favorite costumes was when I was about eight or nine years old. And I remember it vividly because we, we made a lot of our own costumes, sort of budget-friendly, very creative, at-home, designing stuff. But this one was different. I remember getting to go to Target and actually going to the costume aisle and getting to pick out a, like a real costume, like an actual legit costume. And the one that I wanted out of all of them that were there was Spider-Man. I was so into Spider-Man. I wanted this Spider-Man costume, and so I got it. And I remember not being able to wear it until Halloween. It was highly anticipated. I got to Halloween night, and I put on my Spider-Man costume, and I transformed. I became Spider-Man for about 20 minutes. I think my, my mom and dad, I bet you'll start to remember this. 20 minutes into the evening, all of a sudden, I started to have a panic attack. I felt like I couldn't breathe. My chest was tightening up, and all of a sudden, Spider-Man could not breathe because I had this mask on me, and there was literally no ventilation in it. And so I'm this little kid. I was fairly sensitive, and all of a sudden, I'm, like, starting to cry. I'm alone. I'm nervous. I'm so worried about what my friends are going to think of me because Spider-Man does not cry right? He's a superhero. And I remember the eyes, they were made of plastic. And so they started to fog up. And all of a sudden, I can't see anything. I just felt alone in that moment. But I remember my parents, they came over, and they just comforted me and said, Kyle, it's going to be okay. We'll figure it out. And what they did was that they ended up cutting a hole in the mask. So they had me take off the mask and cut a hole where the mouth was, and they cut two holes where the nose, where my nose was. And I put it back on, and Spider-Man could breathe yet again. And I just let out a deep breath, a sigh of relief, and enjoyed the rest of the evening. So I tell you that little story. Um, one, it's Halloween, and it's fun to think about our childhood costumes. But also because when it comes to talking about sex and sexuality, especially in church, I think some of us can feel similar things. Even just saying those words in church, we can start to feel a little bit nervous sometimes, a little bit anxious. It's something that feels so personal. There's so many questions. For some of us, there's shame that comes up for us. We start to feel like that little kid hiding behind a mask. We start to feel like there's something going on inside of us that doesn't actually match 
what's on the outside. All these different feelings can come up. And so what I want to do this morning is just create some breathing room, okay? I'm not going to cover everything, but hopefully just want to put us at ease and make space for these kinds of conversations and allow us to just let out a deep breath in Jesus' presence, holding our sexuality before him and letting him shape us, okay? Um, I think some of us are just very overwhelmed when it comes to this topic. I think there are so many questions, even as I was reading and researching and studying for this talk, I just came across a ton of questions. And so I thought it might be helpful to share some of those um, with you and just see if you resonate with any of them, okay? Couple questions. What is the purpose of sex? How do I have healthy sexual rhythms with my spouse? How do I talk to my kids about sex? What sort of media should I limit? How do I experience freedom from pornography? What about masturbation? How do I heal from sexual trauma? How do I live faithfully to Jesus as a gay person? How do I channel my sexual desires as a single person? Why are some Christians so quick to judge others when it comes to sexuality? How do I practice abstinence? Why don't we talk about this more at church? Why are we talking about this at all? How do I overcome shame that I've been carrying for years? How can we as Christians grow in loving our LGBTQ brothers and sisters? How can I let Jesus meet me in my sexual brokenness? Has anyone asked one of those questions? Anyone? You should all maybe be putting up your hand. A lot of us have questions, right? And if there's anything... Even if you only get this out of this sermon, that it's okay to have questions about sex and sexuality, and it's okay to have questions in the church and bring them before Jesus, that is totally fine by me. Um, the other thing I want you to know is that this is part one, so it's just going to be a little more foundational, a bit of an overview. Next week is part two, and it'll be more practical. Don will be preaching, and he specifically told me he will address all of those questions um, <laughs> next week. So I'm just sort of teeing him up, and he will get to that. <laughs> I got you. Um, <laughs> the truth is, in all seriousness, before we can have any healthy dialogue about any of those things, we need to break the status quo when it comes to sex and sexuality. So for us, I think the status quo, it may be avoiding this topic altogether, judging other people from a distance, living with secret shame that we're carrying on our own, or settling for cultural norms. I think that may be the status quo. And so for us to break the status quo, um, we need a vision for that. And so that's what I want to share today. Three things. Uh, we need to normalize talking about sex and sexuality, especially at church. We need to look inward before we look outward. And we need to remember Jesus' heart of compassion. We need to remember his heart of compassion. So the first thing that I want us to think about is just normalizing this conversation. And 
there's a lot of ways that we can actually do this, but one of them is just getting, uh, is, is identifying the stories that we tell, the stories that inform us about sex and sexuality. So I thought I would just kind of walk through this in three stories, um, one being about our culture, the second being about what the church has done, the story that's often told, uh, and the third is the story that begins in creation in scripture. Um, so I think this will be familiar for you because we live in a culture that's highly sexualized. We see this stuff all over the place. But I think um, the story goes something like this in our culture. Sex is simply recreational play for consenting adults. It's purely physical. It's the biological coupling of two bodies for the purpose of sexual release. What matters is liberating all sexual desires. If it feels right, then go for it. Uh, you deserve to have all your needs net, met. Um, and in many ways, this story that our culture tells, it attempts to reduce our deepest longings to our physical desires. It's all physical. That's why it doesn't really matter in a lot of ways, what the story says. Um, and I know you know this, we see it all around, right, all over film and TV and social media and advertisements and very obvious in the world that we live in, uh, this physicality, but that is a tragic reduction. One author named Ronald Rollheiser, he says this, that in our culture today, it teaches that one cannot be whole without being healthily sexual. That is correct. However, for the most part, it thinks of sex only as having sex. That is a tragic reduction. Sex is a wide energy, and we are healthily sexual when we have love, community, communion, family, friendships, affection, creativity, joy, delight, humor, and self-transcendence in our, our lives. The point is that sexual wholeness is so much more than just having sex. What happens in this story is that when it's reduced to something that's purely physical, the focus is on the individual gratifying his or her own needs. And other than consent, there's not always much discernment in terms of how we respond to our sexual desires. And so the danger is that this can lead to all sorts of pain. Things stemming from casual sex, affairs, hookup culture, addiction to pornography, sexual abuse, deep emotional wounds. So that's one story. Another story comes from the church. And in many ways, this is, these are broad strokes, so just go with me. Um, but the evangelical church in the West, especially in response to the sexual revolution of the 60s, uh, in many ways, responded with an overreaction. And the story often has started with, thou shalt not. I don't know if you're familiar with this and your experience around church. Not everyone. But often the story starts with, don't do it. Don't have sex. Don't think about it. Don't even dare acknowledge those desires. And here are all the rules and regulations, the do's and don'ts. Here's a couple lists. Here are the people who are in, and here's the people who are out when it comes to sexuality. It can often be a story um, that is heard. And it's this story that sees our sexual longings and desires as areas of our humanity that should be 
rejected, suppressed, or ignored. One pastor, he comments on this. He says, this kind of theology permeates our churches so much that to even talk about desire, sex, longings, and eros is done in whispers. Sex and sexuality are to be avoided at all costs. Instead of the church being the community in place to help people make sense of their longings, the longings are seen as antithetical to a robust spirituality. And truthfully, this was, this was some of my experience, at least growing up around church. I remember um, going to purity conferences and having the sex talks at youth group and signing pledges and writing letters to my future wife. Some things that were actually really well-intentioned, but there was an emphasis on moral perfection. There was an emphasis on following the rules perfectly, and I wasn't always sure if it was okay to struggle. And so the problem with this story is that in order to emotionally survive, many who follow this story uh, end up living secret lives. They end up looking for illegitimate outlets to meet legitimate needs. Um, That's another story. The third is the story that we see in scripture. And it's one that begins in a different place. It's one that begins in Genesis 1. And it starts with God creating the first humans as sexual beings. In Genesis 1, 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. So God created us with sexual desire. And the first command he gave in all of the Bible was to have sex and to make children. That was the very first command he gave. This is a good thing. Even at the end of the story, he says, it's good and it's very good. And just note that this is Genesis 1. It's before the fall. So that means that we were sexual before we were sinful. We were created with these sexual desires, and it was part of God's good, perfect, intended design back in the garden. In Genesis 2, there's this beautiful word picture. It's translated as one flesh. It's this word echad in Hebrew, and it's this graphic, weighty word that means fused together at the deepest level. It's actually a really beautiful word that describes the bonding of a man and woman coming together, body and soul, physical and spiritual, in the most beautiful and powerful way. And later in Scripture, in Ephesians 5, again, it talks about this one flesh union as a profound mystery, as something that actually is a signpost pointing to the intimacy that we will one day experience with Christ. The point is that it's beautiful, Scripture speaks about sex as something that God has designed, something that's good, beautiful, a rich display of intimate love, a powerful force that binds us together. It's a force that is so powerful, it needs the covenant bond of marriage to contain this sacred fire. And in this story, the love of God, it actually doesn't remove our desires, it just reorders them. It just reorders them correctly before God. Um, 
the other thing about this story in Scripture is that I'm sure you've noticed this. There is something amazing about the Bible in that it seems to elevate and honor people who struggle with their sexuality. People who, who carry sexual brokenness from the very beginning, the patriarchs, patriarchs of our faith, like Abraham and Jacob, they had issues when it came to sex. We think about King David having major sexual brokenness. Someone like Solomon, who wrote wisdom literature for us, had some, some problems when it came to sex. Even Jesus, he, he surrounded himself with people who were sexually broken. He was quick to engage with prostitutes and include people who were sexual outsiders, people who had sin. That's just what he did. It was so natural to him. And even Paul, in his letters, he does not shy away from engaging this topic. So part of normalizing this conversation is just simply getting in touch with the stories we tell and starting with the biblical story, starting with this good, beautiful, and God's intended design for how things are to be. But the second thing is a bit more personal. And we need to look inward before we look outward. This is close to my heart. In order to break the status quo, we need to get in touch with our own sexual brokenness. So go with me. If you have a Bible, you can open at John 8. I just briefly want to read through a story that I'm sure you know. So feel free to read or just listen. It won't be on the screen. Um, it says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, and started right on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I'm sure you're familiar with this story about a woman caught in the act of adultery. She's caught by a group of religious leaders. And just imagine being there in the crowd that day, in the temple, seeing this scene unfold. What would you be thinking? As you're watching this happen, seeing this woman brought out, publicly shamed before Jesus. For me, a couple questions come to mind, like, where was the man? Why wasn't he brought out and publicly shamed? <laughs> um, was he in on it? Was, this, was it a setup? 
Also, how was this woman caught in the act? I don't know exactly how that happens. We, we simply don't know, but what the text does tell us is that by the end of the story, Jesus tells this woman that she can be free from her life of sin. But I think what is easily overlooked in this story is the sin of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. You see, they were so out of touch with their own brokenness that they were able to use this woman as an object to trap Jesus. And this was a very clever trap. It's something that I think we miss in our reading it as modern readers. The reason it was such a clever trap was because the religious leaders were rooting their argument in Mosaic law. So in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 20, it talks about this situation um, where they had the right to stone a woman. But they also knew that under Roman law, remember Israel at this time was under Roman occupation. Under Roman law, capital punishment was reserved for a Roman governor, a Roman judge. And so Jesus, if he sent this woman away, he would be um, disobeying the Mosaic law, his Jewish customs. But if he condoned their behavior, he'd be breaking the Roman law. Does that make sense? So it's a trap. They're just using this woman. They don't care about her. They're using this woman to trap Jesus because at this point, they're threatened by him. They want to get him killed. But Jesus, in his brilliance, as an act of grace, he makes this statement. He says, let any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. And I see that as an invitation to look inward. I think for us today, that's an invitation for us to look inward and ask things like, am I without sin? What am I struggling with? Is there anything that I might be trying to cover up? When it comes to sexual brokenness, I think we can easily become like the religious leaders, standing at a distance, judging someone else's struggles because they look different than our own, and denying the reality that we too are broken. But the gospel, it points us to inward repentance, not outward to critique. Points us inward to repentance, not outward to critique. Um... For me, this journey of looking inward involved coming to terms with my own addiction to alcohol. Some of you know this about me. Some of you know that I am an alcoholic. And for me, that means that when I drink, I get drunk. And I cannot stop drinking on my own, even if I want to. Um, For many years... Alcohol was a guiding force in my life. It led to a ton of pain, destroying relationships, um, severe depression, suicidal thoughts, really dark places, a lot of isolation and hiding and shame, um, and a lot of lying, too. A lot of lying. But thankfully, my, my deep pain it led me to a place of crying out and asking for help. And God used things like the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous 
a loving family, trusted friends, a wise mentor, even people in this church to help heal my shame in the context of community. Amazing. And what I found was that in the same way that shame seems to grow in the dark, it also seems to diminish when it's brought into the light. There's a book I read called The Soul of Shame, and I love this quote. It says that shame's healing encompasses the counterintuitive act of turning toward what we are most terrified of. But it's in the movement toward another, toward connection with someone who is safe, that we come to know life and freedom from this prison. I think that's why James tells us to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I just share this part of my story with you as my church family for a couple reasons. One, um, today, like today, actually happens to be my sober birthday. The last sip of alcohol I had was on October 30th, 2018. And so today, thank you, thank you. Today marks exactly three years of sobriety, and I am just brimming with gratitude and joy. And so I was really excited to share that. Um, but the other reason is that I see a lot of corollaries with, with our own sexual brokenness, with, with things that we carry, just the crossover in terms of the isolation and hiding and, and shame that many of us have carried um, for years. For a long time, I, I didn't know how to talk about my addiction. I was afraid that people would reject me, felt awkward. It, it, it didn't match the image that I was putting forward. Um, I, just, I, I just felt all this pressure to keep up an image of having it all together. And I think some of us avoid talking about sexual struggles for the same reason. It can just be so much pressure to have it together. There can be so much shame under the surface that we're carrying on our own. One pastor says that when we think about our bodies and sexuality, it's often done under the burden of shame, regret, grief, and anger. Many of us have been wounded by others, abused, shunned, and ignored by people we expected would protect and nurture us. We have allowed our disordered passions to send us down roads of sin, pain, and death. We've used others and been used. We've received debilitating messages and been traumatized by destructive acts. We are all sexually broken. But the really good news is that our stories do not end in that place. Shame does not get the last word. Jesus has conquered and won the battle. And even on this side of heaven, Jesus meets us in the midst of our brokenness. So let me just end with this last point, that we need to remember Jesus' heart of compassion. Hold on to this this morning. Even if anything else I said in the beginning, you're like, I already forgot. Just remember this, that Jesus' heart is full of compassion towards you when it comes to this struggle of being human, when it comes to our brokenness. And just think about that scene in John 8. I don't know if you notice what Jesus does, but he postures himself next to the woman. In the text, it says he stoops down, he bends down. 
he gets close to her, and it stands in such contrast to these religious leaders who were standing away, distancing their self, making a pronouncement against this woman, and Jesus just enters right in. He gets right up next to her. I bet she could hear him breathing. And I can only imagine that that woman was just shaking in fear that day, knowing what would happen to her. Likely naked, trying to cover her body with her head hanging low. And Jesus comes as a protector, as an advocate. He gets close to her in her state of brokenness. I think sometimes with this story, we can sort of theologize what Jesus was writing in the sand, right? As if that's the most important point of the story, but it's just not. The powerful revelation is that the God of the universe, the only one who should have genuinely been offended, who could have postured himself as a judge and an executioner, literally lowers himself to her level and becomes her only friend, protector, and advocate. And yes, he challenges her lifestyle at the end and offers her a new way of life, but not until after he postures himself next to her as an advocate, as a friend. And in our brokenness, in our pain, in our regret, Jesus bends down next to us. He says, I'm right here with you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I do not condemn you. Whatever you're holding, go live a new life characterized by freedom. So just take a deep breath. Receive the warmth of Jesus' compassion. I love um, how this author, Dane Orland, says in the book Gentle and Lowly, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. His most natural instinct is to move toward our sin and suffering, not away from it. This is the good news of the gospel. So do you know that deep in your soul this morning, that Jesus is moving towards you even in your state of brokenness? whatever it may be. I'm sure there are things that are coming to mind for you. Things from the past, pain that you carried, perhaps even things that you're just trying to manage right now, and Jesus is drawing close to you. I think those parts of us that feel most broken and most hidden are actually the parts that desperately need to be known by God so that they can be loved and healed by his power. And I think Jesus might just be giving us an opportunity to actually risk being vulnerable for the sake of freedom. So where are you when it comes to sex and sexuality and sexual brokenness, and making sense of our desires. Where are you this morning? Outside, online, in here. 
I think for those of you who are single, um, you may have feel isolated in your singleness. I think it's important to just call that out. You may be divorced or a widow. Maybe you've always been single. And you've been the recipient of harmful messages from the church, maybe. I think for far too long, Christians have idolized marriage in a way that has made some single people feel less than. And it just feels really important to say that marriage does not make you whole. Jesus makes you whole. Being single is not just a stop on the way to marriage. It's actually a way that we can reflect God's goodness and faithfulness. I know this, actually, because one of my very best friends has been single his whole life, and he's 75 years old, and he just has one of the richest, most full, beautiful, connected lives. And maybe you're married. Maybe you've been married for a long time, like 50 years. That's incredible. I commend you. And maybe this message is just stirring something in your heart. It might be as simple as just recognizing that you've been putting off a conversation with your spouse for far too long. Maybe it's just a simple check-in, or maybe you have been carrying something that you need to share, and you need to taste the, the, the sweetness of forgiveness. Step into that. Be courageous. Maybe you are a parent. And you're just trying to figure out how to have these conversations with your kids. And I just would encourage you, there are so many good resources out there. It may be as simple as just having a heart-to-heart conversation with your child. Making space for that. Or maybe it's getting with other parents and just normalizing these conversations. Um, And maybe you just feel broken. And you feel like you've been just carrying around shame that isn't yours to carry for far too long. And I just want to remind you that Jesus has taken that shame upon his own body on the cross. And that real freedom, real healing is possible when we bring that into the light and bring that before Jesus. I love earlier in the Gospel of John... Jesus says that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So just be encouraged with that this morning. Come to Jesus. I want to end with this prayer um, and would just invite you to reflect on these words. And as I'm praying, just even ask the Holy Spirit, is there anything that you're saying to me this morning? And hold on to that going to be way more important than anything I've said. This prayer comes from Walter Brueggemann. I love this prayer. Pray with me. Almighty God, from whom no secrets are hid, we rush to the next phrase but now linger there. We are rich conundrums of secrets. We weave a pattern of lies in order to be well thought of, We engage in subterfuge about our truth. We carry old secrets too too painful to utter, too shameful to acknowledge, too burdensome to bear, of failures we cannot undo, of alienations we regret but cannot fix, of grandiose exhibits we cannot curb, and you know them. 
You know them all. And so we take a deep sigh in your presence, no longer needing to pretend and cover up and deny. We mostly do not have big sins to confess, only modest shames that do not fit our hoped-for selves. And then we find that your knowing is more powerful than our secrets. You know, and you don't turn away. And our secrets that seem too powerful are emptied of strength. Secrets that seemed too burdensome are now less severe. We marvel that when you find us out, you stay with us, taking us seriously, taking our secrets soberly, but not ultimately, overpowering our little failure with your massive love and abiding patience. We long to be fully, honestly exposed to your gaze of gentleness. In the moment of your knowing, we are eased and lightened, and we feel the surge of joy move in our bodies because we are not ours in cringing, but yours in communion. We are yours and find the truth before you makes us free for wonder, love, praise, and new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Baseline Community Church, please go to BaselineCC.com.